House of Horrors, Part 2, Take 1, and 3, 2, 1. It's a gorgeous fall day here in our Sunshine Room studio in beautiful suburban Folkrock. In the last episode, we started to take a look at Gary Heidnick, the model for Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. True Detective Magazine published my story about Gary Heidnick in his January 1993 issue a long time ago. And I forgot so many of the details over the passage of time. But it's a true story, a shocking yet fascinating story. In part one, you meet Gary Heidnick, watch him get shaped as he grows up and becomes an adult. Part two takes you inside his torture chamber. And part three sees justice served. So let's get started. Yesterday, we met Gary Heidnick. Today, we step inside his torture chamber. We begin around midnight on November 25th, 1986. Around 5.30 that afternoon, Josefina Rivera, 25, tells her boyfriend that she's going shopping. They live together in a third floor apartment in the 1500 block of North 6th Street. She's the mother of three infant children. She's also a hooker. Her boyfriend's celebrating his 30th birthday. I remember the day exactly, the boyfriend recalls. She gave me $50 as a birthday present. And we were talking about where we should spend Thanksgiving. My mother's house, her mother's house, or what? But his girlfriend never goes shopping. Instead, she goes to the corner of 3rd and Gerard and spends the next five hours hustling tricks. Around 11 p.m., a silver and white Cadillac Coupe de Ville slows down, pulls over the curb, and stops in front of her. The driver's a bearded man, somewhat older than she. He's white and has a reddish-brown beard. His clothes are casual, dark trousers, and a buckskin jacket with long fringes. Do you want a party? She asks him. He does. And after a short discussion, they agree to go to his house, where she'll turn the trick for $20. They drive to a three-story row home at 3520 North Marshall Street in the Tioga section of North Philadelphia. This part of North Philadelphia is a rough neighborhood, an inner-city slum seething with poverty, drugs, and an abundance of criminal activities. They go upstairs and have sex on his waterbed, but once he gets up to get dressed, he comes up from behind and grabs her around the throat tightly, then chokes her until she passes out. She regains consciousness some time later. Then he takes her down to the basement and uses muffler clamps to shackle her ankles to a sewer pipe. Now let's move up one week. It's now seven days after Thanksgiving, around three in the afternoon, and Sandy Lindsay is suffering from severe menstrual cramps. A black female of 24, she walks to a corner store near her home in West Philadelphia to buy some Midol. She was a retarded adult, the sister describes her. All she wanted to do was be like you and me, normal, just fit in. And she did pretty much blend in. Sandy had told us before that this guy named Gary was a bishop of a church, and he was going to take Sandy and her friends to great adventure. He was always buying them dinner at McDonald's. But Sandy never comes home from the corner store that day. Her family knows the location of this Gary's home. We knew terrible things went on in that house, her sister says. Drugs, alcohol, and sex. Anytime they wanted to get drunk, they could get drunk there. They just sat over there getting high. And the man that lived there 
He was everything to them. They all looked up to him, and everybody had sex with him. They thought they were just having fun. The two sisters drive by the house several times, but they never see their missing sister. Now let's move up another 20 days to two days before Christmas. Lisa Thomas, a 19-year-old black female, remembers leaving a pair of gloves at a friend's house. She's an unemployed single mother. Around 8 p.m., she decides to walk over to her friend's house to get the gloves. As she's walking, the Cadillac pulls over to the curb next to her. Do you want to make some money? The driver asks her. No, I'm no prostitute. Do you need a ride? He persists. She accepts the ride and they quickly bond. After picking up her keys, they stop at a TGIF on City Line to grab a bite to eat. Tomorrow, he says, I'm going to Atlantic City and I'd like to take you with me. Well, I'd really like to go, but I don't have nothing to wear. No problem. He drives to a nearby Sears, gives her a $50 bill and says, spend it all. She buys two pairs of jeans and two tops. Then they drive to his home on North Marshall Street. She goes inside the house. At first, she sits in the kitchen drinking a wine cooler. Then she goes in the living room and he brings her a beer. But then he grabs her neck, shakes her, and starts choking her. She thinks he's trying to kill her. Wait a minute, she says. I'll do whatever you want. So he stops choking her and then says, you be cooperative and nothing will happen to you. Okay. He pulls out a pair of handcuffs and cuffs her hands behind her back. Then he leads her down into the basement where she sees several large trash bags and thinks that body parts are tucked inside. Them. You're going to kill me, she says, aren't you? You want to kill me. No, I don't want to kill you. Trust me. I'm not going to kill you. He handcuffs her feet to a sewer pipe with muffler clamps, then points toward a hole in the basement floor. I'm going to introduce you to my two friends down there. They dead down there, she says, aren't they? They dead. No, nah, just trust me, but shut up or I will hurt you. She stops talking at once. And when he took the lid off the hole, she recalls, I seen two girls coming out of there. Let's move up another 10 days to the day after New Year's. Debbie Dudley, 23, is an unemployed black female, a high school dropout, and one of 11 children. Her friends describe her as wildly energetic. They also say she drinks hard and she's quick-tempered. I wouldn't want to mess with her, says a neighbor. She was powerful. I remember when she beat this kid up after he stole $10 from her. Debbie Dudley goes out for the night, but she never comes back home. Sixteen days later, Jacqueline Askins is an 18-year-old black female, a prostitute. She's working the streets of North Philly when a Cadillac pulls up and stops. He told me he'd give me $20, she recalls, if I went with him for a half hour. So I go. When we got to his house, he started playing a video game. He kept playing it for like 45 minutes. Then he grabbed me in a headlock with his arm around my neck, and he started choking me. A little later, he dragged me down to the basement, and I met Josephina, Lisa, Debbie, and Sandy. If you're keeping score at home, that makes her captive number five. But that number soon dwindles down to four. One day in February, Josefina Rivera calls, Sandy tried to remove the plywood that was covering the pit. To punish her, he handcuffed one of her arms to a beam and let her hang straight down for several days. Sandy started vomiting and lost consciousness. 
When he tried to revive her, he couldn't, which angered him. So he unchained her and let her fall straight down. She landed on the floor and hit her head. I thought she was dead, but he said she was faking. So he threw her down into the pit. He feeds ice cream to the rest of the girls, then leaves for a while. When he comes back, he pulls Sandy out of the pit, picks her up, and carries her upstairs. I couldn't really tell for sure if she was still alive, but I didn't think so. He turned the music up real loud, but I could hear loud buzzing over the music. It went on for a couple hours. At the same time, a horrible smell filled the house, but I never saw Sandy again and figured he killed her and chopped up her body. The next day, the air in that neighborhood often smells from the stink of decaying garbage, clogged toilets, and backed up sewer lines. But that evening, the next door neighbor smells a rotten stench that makes her think that Gary Heidnick, her next door neighbor, dropped dead and his body is decomposing. It smelled terrible, she recalls, so I called the police and an officer came over. I proceeded to knock on the door, the officer recalls, for approximately 10 or 15 minutes. Then I proceeded to the rear of the premises where I did some more knocking, looked through the rear window. I could see a large pot. Something was overboiling and the smell was twice as strong in the back of the house. I was about to call a supervisor. All of a sudden, the door opens and Gary Heidnick walks out. Gary, the neighbor says, what is that god-awful smell? I'm cooking a roast. I fell asleep in a burnt. We thought you were dead or something, the neighbor says. No, I'm all right. The explanation satisfies the officers, so he leaves. But there's no roast burning. Gary Hodnick is cooking Sandy Lindsay's head in that pot on the stove. And he's getting rid of her body parts so that no one can identify her. Now we move up six more weeks to the middle of March. And the number of captives dwindles to three. Debbie Dudley refuses to cooperate with Gary and challenges authority. Such insubordination does not sit well with him. For her punishment, Josefina Rivera recalls, he filled the pit with water and attached wires to her chains. Then he plugged the cord into an outlet and electrocuted her, dead. With his number of girls down to three, Gary wants to start replenishing his stock. He decides to take Josefina Rivera with him to help him find another girl, but he warns her that he'll kill her if she tries anything funny. While we were on Gerard, Josefina recalls, we passed by a girl I know, Agnes Adams, 24, a black female. Then we went back to Gary's house and he had sex with her. After they finished having sex, he took her down to the basement and chained her up. The next night, Josefina Rivera's boyfriend is rudely awakened from a deep sleep by fits of wild screaming, knocking, and a doorbell that won't stop ringing. It's his girlfriend, Josefina, standing outside the front door. It's the first time he's seen her since his birthday five months earlier. She was crying and shaking, he recalls. You got to help me, she screams. You're the only one who can help me. He got three girls down in the basement. He got arms and things in the refrigerator. They walk to the phone booth on the corner. She calls 911 and begins telling a horrific story. And as soon as the call ends, the police dispatcher sends two officers to verify the call. It doesn't take long for the officers to arrive in the police van. One's a seasoned veteran and the other's bucking for a promotion to detective. And between them, 
They hear wild stories almost every night. Most drug-induced or alcohol-laced fantasies. But Josefina Rivera starts telling them the wildest story they ever heard. A story about torture, sexual abuse, and murder all rolled into one. She said her captor's name was Gary, one officer recalls, and he was driving a Cadillac. She said he's at an all-night gas station at 6th and Gerard waiting for her to come back. So I said, well, let's see if Mr. Gary's up there. And sure enough, the Cadillac's right where she said it would be. The officers get out of the police van and approach the vehicle. One officer knocks on the driver's window. The window goes down immediately, and the officer sees a man sitting behind the wheel. The officer asks to see his license. Man behind the wheel produces a valid Pennsylvania driver's license that identifies him as Gary Heidnick. He doesn't appear to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Why do you think you're being detained? The officer asks calmly. Does it have anything to do with child support payments? This obviously has nothing to do with child support payments. The officer orders him out of the car. Josefina Rivera comes down and says, yeah, that's him. That's him. He raped me and killed these two other girls, and he had me eating their bones. He cut up this girl and put her in a pot and made us eat her. And there's other girls still down there, down in the hole in the cellar. The officers handcuff Gary Heidnick, then transport him to police headquarters called the Roundhouse. Once inside the Roundhouse, the officers escort Gary Heidnick and Josefina Rivera into separate conference rooms in the sex crimes unit. And for the next four hours, teams of detectives interview them both. She looks sober, doesn't appear to be strung out on drugs. For the last four months, she tells the detectives, I've been chained, beaten, and stuffed into a big hole in that basement of his home. At first, the hole was small. I had to curl myself into a ball to fit inside, and he put a board on top to cover the hole. Three days after he kidnapped me, he brought in a girl named Sandy. He told us that the world was full of impure people. He wanted us to bear his children and help him create a purified world. He chained Sandy's feet to a ceiling beam with her back on the floor and her legs spread up in the air so he could have sex with her anytime he wanted. The first time he chained me in the basement, he said, I want to have kids, lots of them. I got kids already, but the state keeps taking them off me. Well, I got a way now of having kids so nobody can take them away. You're just the start. You're going to have my babies down here, but not just you. I want to get 10 girls down here so you can all have my kids. She tells detectives that he kept bringing women home, one by one. He chained them all, stripped them nude, and had sex with all of them. He played one girl against another, she says, to see who would obey his commands and who wouldn't. He wanted to see who would rat out the others and who wouldn't. Sometimes he'd turn on the music and pretend to leave. Then he'd hide outside and listen to see if anyone screamed for help. If someone screamed, he'd crank up the music and torture them. He'd gag them to shut them up. Then he'd stick screwdrivers in their ears until blood came squirting out. Sometimes he hooked live wires up to their metal shackles and shocked them, and there was always sex. He had sex with me every day in the beginning. Then, as he brought in more girlfriends, that's what he called us, his girlfriends, he took turns on all of us. He wanted all of us to bear his pure babies. Then she describes the way he killed Debbie Dutley. One day, 
Debbie refused to cooperate with him any longer and challenged his authority. That angered him. So he filled the pit with water and attached wires to Debbie's chains. Then he plugged the cord into an outlet and electrocuted her. Do you have any idea what he did with the body? The detective asks. At first, she says, he put Debbie's body in the freezer. Then a couple days later, he took me along to help him. He drove over to New Jersey and dumped her body in the woods. Tonight, I told him I'd help him find a new girlfriend, you know, to replace Debbie. So we spent a few hours cruising around North Philly. When we got to the Mini Mart, I told him to let me out. That's where I'd find a new girlfriend for him. He hesitated, almost drove away. Then he let me out, but he warned me. He said, I'll kill you if you try anything funny. But he let me go. Then I sneaked away and ran over to my boyfriend's apartment. At 4 a.m., a search warrant arrives and police officers drive to Gary Hodnick's home. The house looks intimidating to them. It has metal doors, all the windows have bars, and there's a crucifix in a window. Two officers use a battering ram to smash down the front door. Inside, it's dark and spooky, and the volume of the television is playing real loud. Exercising caution, the officers approach the stairway leading down to the basement, then start going down the stairs. It's ominously quiet down below. The only sounds are their own footsteps on the rickety wooden treads leading below. They don't hear anyone crying out for help, so they begin doubting Josefina Rivera's story somewhat. At the bottom of the stairs, they shine their flashlights all around the basement, and then they see two girls sitting on a mattress that's lying on the floor. They're chained to a soil pipe and padlocked. They're naked, and they look like they're in shock. All of a sudden, they start screaming, We're saved! We're saved! An officer has to go to the firehouse to get bolt cutters to cut Lisa Thomas and Jacqueline Askins loose. And inside a four-foot pit beneath the basement floor, the officers find Agnes Adams. When we heard the banging, Lisa Thomas tells the officers, we kept quiet because he usually tested us to see if we would scream or holler. If we did, he would beat the shit out of us. When, when we seen the flashlights and all you cops, we knew we were safe. The three women tell detectives they've been raped and tortured. Then one of the officers goes upstairs into the kitchen and right to the freezer. Josefina Rivera said they'd hide and stored body parts in there. He opens the freezer and wrapped in plastic, he finds two forearms without the hands attached, plus pieces of several thighs. In all, he finds 24 pounds of frozen human flesh. On top of the stove, and inside the oven, he finds smaller chunks of cooked body parts. Plus, he also observed charred bone fragments inside the oven. Evidence technicians box the evidence and transport it all to the police lab. Upstairs in the bedroom, the officers observe walls that are papered with $1 and $5 bills. And they find Gary Heidnick's Merrill Lynch financial statement. To their amazement, it shows a balance of more than $500,000, half a million dollars. Who the hell is this guy? Charles Manson or Michael Milliken? The next day, while bulldozers are plowing the front and backyards at Gary Heidnick's home, Josefina Rivera is on the other side of the Delaware River in New Jersey. She's leading a search party with detectives and officers to where Gary Heidnick disposed of the body of Debbie Dudley. Gary had a New Jersey map she tells the detectives. 
and he went out and stopped at the Burlington Flea Market. From there, we pulled into a little place, like a little driveway, and Gary said, this is it. This is where I'm going to place Deborah's body at. He walked a good ways into the park because he didn't want anybody to find it. That was just like strolling through the park or something. When they find the spot she recognizes, officers release two bloodhounds to the search area. The bloodhound starts sniffing the ground, trying to pick up the scent of a dead body. And it doesn't take long for the bloodhounds to sniff out a corpse, the dead body of a nude female lying in a shallow grave that's covered with sticks and leaves. The county coroner pronounces the victim dead at the scene. Later, he identifies the cause of death as electrocution and identifies the victim as Debbie Dudley. A media circus begins almost immediately. Television programming on all the television stations in the city and across the country are interrupting their regular programming with news flashes about the discovery of this house of horrors. Ditto radio programming and sketchy information is coming in at a fast and furious pace. Meanwhile, back at Philadelphia Police Headquarters, Detective Eddie Rocks arrests Gary Heidegg. He's processed and held without bail. And this is as good a place as any to end part two. I worked with Eddie Rocks on at least a half dozen murder cases. He was a vital cog in Philly PD's Special Investigations Unit, SIU for short. The elite subdivision within the homicide department that deals with unsolved crimes and serial killers. Eddie's a special breed. He was Philly PD's version of Serpico and or Beretta. Remember, my House of Horrors ebook is available on Amazon, reasonably priced. Get it now or get it later. We'll get into part three next time. Justice served. So that's it for now. Thanks for stopping in. Until next time, see you. And that's a wrap. And that's a wrap. One or the other.